Morning, everybody. It's good to see all your faces here this morning. We're going to dive right into the Word of God. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're working our way through the second letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, There might have been others, but these are the ones that we have in our possession. These are the ones that God intended for us to know and to have. And so, uh, therefore, we are walking through allowing the Word of God to speak for itself. And I hope this morning that the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, they find you in your your place of need and your place of want, and that God really ministers to your heart and mind through His Word. And so that's my goal. That's my aim. So... um, I know it was announced earlier that we are having Mike and Cicely's wedding on Tuesday, which just so happens to be Valentine's Day. Um, Some of you who have been here for a while know my opinion about Valentine's Day. In my opinion, Valentine's Day is one of the least romantic days of the year. Now, the reason I say that is because it's an obligatory romance day. And to me, anything that is coerced or obligatory is not that romantic. In other words, it's it's society, it's the calendar, it's everything, putting a gun to your head saying, you better buy flowers and chocolates and a card or else you hate your spouse. That's just my opinion. It doesn't have to be a popular opinion. You don't have to agree with it. And I hope this doesn't diminish at all your wedding coming up on Tuesday, on Valentine's Day. I I recognize this is probably not a a smart thing to say, but uh, if you know me, I'm not that smart of a person. So here we go. Um, But with that said, with that said, romance is a very important thing. Whether in, in a marriage or in a relationship, romance is indeed very important. And what I have had to learn is even though I feel this way about this holiday, I want to, want to be romantic for my wife. And if Valentine's Day is a day where she would feel like that would be a romantic day to buy her flowers or do things like that, then I want to change my attitude so that I can want to want to give her something on that day instead of feeling obligated to do it. So, (laughs) all that to say, at the end of the day, whether it's in relationships, or whether it's within the way that we choose to love one another, or the way that we honor God and love God, it's important that we want to do these things, and that we aren't coerced, and we aren't obliged to do it just out of pure duty. Because God wants our heart He wants us to truly be in it. And I'll tell you what has happened to me over the years with Valentine's Day is that my desire has been to bring my wife pleasure and joy on those days. And even though she knows how I feel, my thought is I want her to be honored. And if on that day all the other people are giving out flowers and stuff and she's sitting here alone because I've given my speech about how Valentine's Day is the least romantic day, that doesn't make her feel any better. Right? So, so I've had to really do some soul searching. I've had to think to myself, okay, because I love her and because I want to honor her and because I want her to feel good, then I want to give her something on Valentine's Day. So do you kind of see, do you see how that works? So we're going to look at the text today, and Paul's going to talk about that very thing. 
the place of our want? Are, are we living out our Christian life out of obligation, out of duty, out of coercion? Or are we doing it because we truly love him, we want to honor him, and we want to glorify his name through our activities and our behaviors and the things that we do? So that's the theme. That's kind of the tone I want to set today is that God is after the heart of why we're doing things. Not the fact that we're doing things, but the heart of it. Why are we doing things? So let's say a word of prayer, and we'll let the Word of God speak. Father in heaven, thank you so much for today, this new day, this new opportunity to be alive, to be here on this battlefield, this place of testing. Father, I just ask that you would be with us in a special way today and throughout this week, that, God, you would guide and minister us to us, that you would help us, Lord, in our place of want, to want what you want. Father, our heart, my heart's desire is to want what you want, to do what you want. I want to make you happy. I want to please you, Lord. So please, show us how to do this, God, and just minister to our selfish hearts. Help us, Lord, just to, to live like you, to do as you did. And I pray that through the word this morning that you would teach us how, that you would inspire us, that we would really at the source of want, God, we would want what you want above all else. And Father, help us to be better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better brothers and sisters in Christ, and help us to want to do it. So Father, we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so continuing on, the Apostle Paul, he is uh, talking to the church at Corinth about this gift that, uh, that he is collecting and that him and his associates are collecting. They're traveling around to Macedonia and Achaia, the different provinces in Greece, and they are collecting from the different churches charity to help out the people in Jerusalem because of the uh, poverty that is happening at the time, because of the famine that is happening at the time. So he's taking a collection from all the churches to help them out in their hour of need. And so he's been talking for the last few chapters about this very thing, and even about just the topic of giving in general. What does it mean to give, and, and, and that it should be a free will offering and not something done in coercion. And so that leads him up to this point where he's talking to them about sending people ahead of him to make sure that their hearts and everything are in the right place before he comes a final time to make a final collection. So this is where we left off last time. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 24. And I'd always encourage you guys to bring your own Bibles, uh, especially if you have paper Bibles, but there's no condemnation if you use digital Bibles. I use digital Bibles all the time. The thing is, one of these days, a big old weather balloon is going to fly over and an EMP is going to go off, and you're not going to be able to use your electronic devices, and so you're probably going to hope that you have a paper Bible around. So I'd encourage you to primarily use your paper, paper Bibles, be used to uh, finding the references and the resources there. But again, no condemnation if you want to use digital Bibles. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Paul continues, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous 
for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. For I know that your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So we're going to look at that section there. So Paul is telling them he wants to see proof. He wants them to give proof before the churches of their love because they've been talking about how much they love all the churches, how much they love the Lord, how much they desperately want to give to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So they've been talking up a big game. Now, how many of you have known people who have talked up a big game? Oh, yes, I love church. I love ministry. I love helping people. But then when it comes time to go to church, they're nowhere to be found. Or when it comes time to step up and help people, oh, they have an excuse and they're doing this other thing. You know, there's a lot of people who mean well or want to appear to mean well and who oftentimes boast a big game but can't back it up. And so Paul... He's addressing the church at Corinth, saying, you say all these things, but I want to see proof that your hearts are truly in it. And we're going to see exactly why he's wanting proof of their boast and of their love. And so he goes on to say that, and he recognizes the fact that it's superfluous for him to continue to repeat these things and to ask them to, to commit and prove to him that they truly do mean what they say. And this word used, peritsos, um, essentially means to overflow. And so Paul is acknowledging the fact that he's becoming redundant in his teaching and in his encouragements and in his instructions. And so he recognizes that they could be offended by this. In fact, many people are. If you repeat the same instruction to somebody, that can tend to be or seem insulting. Like, what do you think, I'm stupid? You think I, you think I didn't hear you the first time? Why are you repeating it again? I'm not stupid. And you kind of find this in, in marriage sometimes, too. You know, the, your spouse might be saying, hey, did you, uh, did you do this thing I asked you to do? Uh, yeah, you asked me to do it yesterday. Why are you asking me again? Don't you trust me? Right? So, so there, there's this whole dynamic that goes on with relationships where we tend to get easily offended if somebody is repeating instructions or things like that. And so the instruction that Paul wants to give is something he has repeated before and he has been repeating through these last couple chapters. Now he says in verse 2, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So before he gets into the reason why he needs to repeat himself, he wants to encourage them. And I think this is so important. You know, if you ever have to give anybody instruction or correction or rebuke, it's so important that you reassure them, especially if you actually feel this way, that, you know what, I love you. I appreciate you. I boast about you to all the churches. I'm thankful for you. So he wants to begin by encouraging them and saying, hey, everything I'm about to say doesn't mean I hate you or despise you. Everything I am about to say is for your own good, it's for my good, and it's for ultimately the good of ministry in general. So he wants to remind them that he has boasted about them. 
So Paul boasted to the believers of Macedonia about the readiness and zeal of the people of Achaia to give. Now I have a map up here, because if you can't see the map in your mind's eye, it's important that you see it here. So if you notice where Corinth is, you see Athens as well, and you see in big letters above that Achaia. So the, the Greco-Roman world was divided up into different provinces. We have, you know, counties here, essentially a similar idea uh, where they had the province or the county of Achaia. And then north of that is Macedonia, and that's the place in question. That's the place where Paul was traveling to, and he was telling the people of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea that, man, the Corinthians, are, they're just on fire. They really want to give. They're anxious to give and to help out. And so he used the Corinthians, and he boasted about the Corinthians, to fire up the Macedonians to give as well. And he's back and forth, he's just saying, yeah, these people are giving. You're not the only one giving. A lot of people are contributing. A lot of people are helping. And so he's talking about Macedonians and the Macedonian churches. And we talked about those at great length a couple weeks ago. Now, when we look at their profile, the people in Macedonia were struggling and suffering some things of their own. And so for them, at the very beginning, when Paul came through and said, hey, we need some help. There's a famine in Jerusalem. They need some help. A lot of people are sick. A lot of people are dying. A lot of people are going without. So we could use whatever financial help you can give. And the people of Macedonia were reluctant at, at first, as many people might be who have problems of their own. You might be thinking, well, I, I have issues I'm not in a place to really give for other people's issues. So that was, their, that was their posture. And so they were hesitant. But after a while, they, after they began to see the true great need that was in Jerusalem and that the need was greater than their own, they gave even out of their suffering, even out of their own poverty, they gave to contribute and help. And the Bible didn't say exactly how much they gave. You go back to the widow the widow who was giving money, and Jesus said she gave more than anybody else, even though she gave so little, because she gave out of her poverty. And so the Macedonians were very much like that widow. And so they were hesitant at first, but then they followed through ultimately in the end. Now the Corinthians, we're going to find, were sort of the opposite. They came out hot and heavy, but now it seems like they're being a little hesitant. Well, we told you we were going to contribute. We told you we were going to help, but now we're double-checking our, our, our uh, budget, and we're, we're trying to make sure that it works out. So Paul's kind of getting a hint of this. And so when we look at the Corinthian hesitation, um, this was concerning to Paul. Now, let's go back to this idea of redundancy in ministry. Because ultimately, we are forgetful creatures. We often lack self-awareness. We can become complacent in our understanding. We can also lose our enthusiasm for ministry and be tempted to back out of our commitments. I mean, there's been many times over my 20 years of ministry experience where there's been pockets of time where I've just not felt enthusiastic. When it comes to sitting down and studying the scriptures and preparing for a sermon, I'll be sitting and, and just thinking like, I don't want to do this. I know I'm committed to do this. I know I'm supposed to preach this Sunday, but I don't want to do this. Or if there's a great need that somebody has 
and it's my job to step in and, and fill that need. There's times where I'm just thinking, maybe it's time to step down. Maybe it's time for somebody else to do these things. I felt the lack of enthusiasm in ministry before. But you know what has really encouraged me out of those those lulls or those times where I just felt really discouraged? A brother or sister coming along and reminding me of why I started to do it in the first place. Reminding me of, of what's at the heart of ministry and why I'm even doing what I'm doing. And that's because Jesus Christ had paid it all for me. He gave it all. He willfully walked up that hill to an excruciating death so that I can be free from my sin and so that I can have hope of heaven. And even though I knew that in those times of discouragement, in those times where I'm not enthusiastic, even though I I knew that mentally, it, it didn't connect to the heart. And sometimes when a brother or sister comes to you and reminds you of this, you know, your first thought might be to get offended. But don't you think I know this? I mean, I'm the pastor. How, how dare you remind me that Jesus died for my sins? Of course I know this. Okay, you know this, but do you know this? Has there been a connection? Have you lost that connection? And you know what? Sometimes when a brother or sister comes up and reminds you even of the simple truths of the gospel, they help reconnect those things for you sometimes. So I'd encourage you to not be offended if a brother or sister comes up to you and tells you just a plain truth that you've known since childhood. It's because they want to encourage you in the Word of God as we should. And so let me read a few scriptures here that, that show us that it is a good thing to be redundant with the scriptures, with the gospel. Philippians 3.1 Paul wrote to the Philippians, which is a Macedonian church. He said, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So it's a safeguard. We, and we shouldn't grow tired of repeating the same things. In fact, a majority of my job is to repeat the same things over and over and over and over again. And where pastors or ministers get in trouble is when they think, well, I'm kind of tired of the same old truths. Uh, let, let's, let's find something new. Let's put a new twist on it. You know, let, let's, make it, let's make it my own. Let's make it original. You know, and that's the temptation. Is because you're like, so my job really is just to, to read the Scriptures to people, to teach and preach about the Scriptures, how they were originally written and intended for the church, and then just to do that over and over and over and over. That's, that's my job. I'm, I'm not supposed to come up with some new-fangled, type of theology? Right, you're not. You're not. Because what did Jesus say when he gave us the Great Commission? Go teach them all that I have taught you. He didn't say, go teach them a a new gospel. No, teach them the gospel that I gave you. So yes, it's no trouble for me to get up here and tell you the gospel week after week after week to share the scriptures with you as they were written week after week after week. And it's also a safeguard for you and for me to be reminded because we forget. 2 Peter 1, 12-13, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them 
and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Again, reminding stirs us up. It stirs up the spirit. When you got a bunch of dust and stuff settled on your heart and your soul and your spirit, and you've just kind of grown tired, and you've grown grown, uh, just all these things have gotten old to you, then when somebody reminds you, it just knocks up the dust. It stirs up the dust. It's like vacuuming your soul, vacuuming your heart, and the dust is just stirred up and gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So we are to hold fast, to remind each other all the time. So never grow tired of people reminding you. Now, there are times where there might be some who wish to control you or manipulate you or abuse you who will come and just like do this to you with scripture like bible thump you in the head with with scripture to try and manipulate and control you now apart from that we should welcome and embrace reminders of even if it feels redundant moving on verse three Paul continues, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and I find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. So in other words, he's saying, you're all great, but. You're all great, but. Despite the fact that you are great, I still feel the need for you to prove to me that you guys are truly willing and ready to do what you say you're going to do. Now, there's a popular saying, and maybe you've heard it, but it's, it's known as trust but verify. Now, this is an old Russian proverb, which was popularized by President Ronald Reagan during negotiations with the Soviet Union um, a while ago. (laughs) Um, And this proverb actually fits, I think, Paul's partnership with the Church of Corinth. Not to say that the Church of Corinth is like the Soviet Union, but rather that Paul, he trusted them as fellow believers but he still needed verification that what they were saying was indeed true. And so this was the type of relationship that he had with them because they had done enough to where he was concerned about the legitimacy of their commitment. And so they were on a trust but verify basis in their relationship. Now, if you remember the beginning of this letter, if you remember the last letter, there were people at the church at Corinth who were trying to undermine the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They were starting to uh, develop factions based off of who their favorite preachers were. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a Paul guy. Well, I'm an Apollos guy. Well, I'm a Kepha guy. I'm a Peter guy. You know, and so they started to fraction as a church. And there were people from the outside and from the inside who were starting to demean and belittle Paul's ministry. And so things were really unsettled between Paul 
and the church at Corinth, despite the fact that he stayed committed to them and despite the fact that he declared them to be brothers in Christ. There was still that issue that was within them. And so Paul had a positional trust, but a practical verification relationship with them. Positionally, he had a general posture of boasting about them and trust in the church at Corinth, but because of these issues, the outstanding tension, he needed to verify their credibility as well. And so Paul says, because of this, I'm sending brothers ahead of me. I'm not coming first. I'm sending others ahead of me to vet you, to make sure that your hearts are in the right place and that you're truly committed to what you're going to do. Now, the biggest part of this whole thing is he's not going to make sure that they fill the coffers to overflowing. He's not going to make sure that they reached a certain dollar amount. That's not what he says. He's not saying, I'm coming to make sure that you give lots of money and more money than anybody else. That's not what he's saying. He says he's coming so that they can make sure that it's a willing gift, not an exaction. So what is Paul after here? Is he after the money itself? He's after where are your hearts at as you're giving this money? Are you giving this money willfully? Or are people forcing you to do it? Are people putting guns to your head to force you to give this money? And we talked a lot about the problems with with socialism, for example, because socialism uses coercion in order to get people to give their money. In other words, you have no choice. It doesn't matter if you're a willing participant or not. You have to give it. And regardless of how a governing authority might use that money that you give, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't matter. You're disconnected totally from it. It's just you have what we want and what we need. We're going to take it. We're going to disperse it how we please. Paul's heart reflected God's heart and that he wanted people who gave for this cause to give willfully and not out of coercion. And so this is the reason why he was sending these brothers ahead to vet the hearts of the church at Corinth. Let's look at the next next section, and this will really hit it home. Verse 6, he tells us the point. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Did you catch that? Each one must give as the next guy is giving. No. Each one must give as the pastor suggests they give. No. Each one must give as the authorities demand they give. Well, now we can get into Romans 13 and submit to governing authorities, et cetera, et cetera. But we're talking here about church, charity, and giving. No, it says each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, willfully, in his own heart, not reluctantly. So in other words, like, uh, maybe, fine, fine, fine should never be the response of giving. Or like, oh, that was a mistake. It should never be regret. Giving should always be met with true joy and happiness and excitement about the opportunity to give. 
not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not gun to head. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, when you've heard that verse in the past, God loves a cheerful giver, giver, how often have you applied that to simple tithes and offerings during church? You've probably even heard a sermon about it. Now, how many times have you thought about the full context that this had to go with above and beyond your normal giving to a local fellowship? That's what this is referring to. Going above and beyond to help brothers and sisters in need who are in a faraway area who are truly and desperately in need. Not just the people who you know, need to uh, repair their roof or get a better car. No, like the people who are truly, desperately in need and might not have a meal the next day. And so, Paul is talking about being a cheerful giver when you give in abundance for people's needs. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And so this is ultimately the point. Paul is after their heart, just as God is after their heart. And this is what he wants to make sure because he questions where their heart is at. Because I have no doubt the people of Corinth, which was a metropolitan, I did this last week too, COVID brain, this is like, you know, long COVID. I'm going to blame everything on COVID whenever I stutter, whenever I can't remember something. COVID, okay, can we just agree to that? Yeah. Metropolitan, the church at Corinth was in a very metropolitan area, very, you know, urban. Um, they had a lot of money going around. It was, it was a, a um, high commerce area, so they had a lot of high class people who were living there, and so they had a lot of money floating around. But Paul, Paul knew that they would probably give more than Macedonia. But that's not what his concern was. His biggest concern was their heart. And so I ask you, Clayton Community Church, no matter how much money you have or how much money you give, where is your heart when you give? Because that's what God cares about the most. He doesn't care about how much you give. He cares about your heart as you're giving. That's what matters. So it's good. I want you to take time to really think about your heart when you give. We've had a lot of conversations as a church about tithes and offerings and when, when people generally give. Uh, we've talked about online giving and things like that. And the, the biggest problem we have with online giving at this point, despite the fact that it's very convenient, despite the fact that there are people who are outside of our church congregation, family members, things like that, who would like to give but don't like to give through the mail, who have said, we would love, to, love it if you guys had some online giving. And the one thing, the one stumbling block is always, yeah, but they're not connected to why they're giving in any way. Any way. We, we want to verify that their hearts are in the right place and they're not just throwing money at the church. We want to make sure that as they give, they're giving for the Lord's sake and they're giving because they love the Lord. They want to contribute to the work that's going on here. But, but how do we do that? How do we verify? How do we make sure that their hearts are in the right place? 
And so those are issues that we're working with as well. We're not interested in just getting money. We're interested in the hearts of those who are contributing, the hearts of those who are tithing. We want hearts to be right no matter how much is given. And ultimately, Paul says here, the point is, you will also reap what you sow. The principle of reap what you sow is rooted in the Old Testament and New Testament teachings, which Paul ultimately applies to this situation. Consider, if you will, Proverbs 22.8, which says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. And so this idea of you reap what you sow is rooted in Proverbs. Proverbs 11.18, one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Galatians 6, 7 through 8, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there is this principle of you get out what you put in. And it's not just with money, but it's also with effort. If you want to get out something if you want to get out good something, then you need to put in a solid effort. I mean, you can't just sit there and expect for things to happen. You actually need to put a foot forward and put forward an effort. You need to sow diligently, because if you do, you will reap diligently. You need to, if you sow sparingly, you will also reap sparingly. If you, if you sow bountifully, you also reap bountifully. Now, does this mean that if you give a lot of money, then God will give you a lot of money? Well, it, it might be a principle, but if that's what you're after, then your heart's in the wrong place, and you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point. Because I believe fundamentally and practically that God will, if you demonstrate that you are giving of a right heart, and you're, you're giving much, then God will give you much because he knows that you will continue to give much because it's in your heart to do so. See, the people who just try and get rich off of these things, like health, wealth, and prosperity type thing, if you think like, well, if I just give a lot, then God's going to give me a lot and I'm going to get rich. No, the problem is you're not going to get rich because you're going to keep giving it away. That's the thing, is you're just going to become like a, a conduit for God's giving. And that's all going to lead to thanksgiving. But the problem is once you put a stop to that, maybe your heart changes. As God continues to give, you just hoard and you keep and you selfishly use it for yourself. And we've seen this happen where people set out with the right heart. They have great intentions. They're, they're so giving, but then all of a sudden they just get enticed and tempted by being rich and by building up their own kingdoms here on earth. And so, yes, the principle does apply. You will reap what you sow. But so long as you continue to sow with the right heart, you will reap what is good. And so God loves a cheerful giver. Again, this comes back to that principle. God wants service with a genuine smile. He doesn't want reluctant ministers. He doesn't want reluctant givers. He doesn't want those who are begrudging about the fact that they have to do the Lord's work. I have to go to the church, and 
Uh, today I'm signed up for children's ministry, so I have to do it. Uh, how many of you are guilty of that attitude? I am guilty of the attitude of, I have to go to church today and I have to preach a sermon. I have to put on a happy face and I have to entertain people. And, you know, I have to, like, be the mature one in the room. And, I, you know, I have to listen to people in, intently to all their problems. And Well, I got problems of my own. All right, I want to come here and I want to vent to you. Right, I want to get up here and, and just, you know, tell you what I really think about you. Um, we do that, don't we? I mean, sometimes we just get that way where we're like, I don't want to do it. And if I do it, I'm doing it begrudgingly. But God wants us to minister in a cheerful way. And, and if we get to that point where our hearts are not in the right place, then we need to spend a lot of time on our knees. Because the problem is nothing on the external. The problem is the heart. And who, who can change the heart but God? Can any of you change your own hearts? Can any of you plant your own desires? No. God is the one who operates within that realm. And so therefore, our only hope is to drop to our knees and ask God to change the, the point of desire, the point of want to come in and to, to help us. And you know, this works with sin too. If you're battling with sin, if you have sinful desires... Get on your knees and ask God to change your heart, to give you a desire for him and for righteousness. And it works with your desire to give as well. God is the one who makes all grace abound to us. Uh, he quotes Psalm 112. And I wanted to read this whole chapter because by way of reminder, whenever a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament scripture, even if it's like a few lines or a couple verses or maybe just one verse, what that author is doing is he's pointing his attention to the full context of the verse in which he's quoting. He's not just quoting that verse. Today we like the little one-liners that say it perfectly. You know, little quotations we like to post on social media and stuff that just, that one little quote that just says what we're thinking. Well, New Testament authors didn't do it that way. They pointed to a verse because the entire context has the whole idea that they're trying to convey. And so here, as, as believers, we should be looking to Psalm 112 in its entirety. And thankfully for all of us here this morning, it's a short psalm. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 112. And he actually, he's quoting from Psalm 112, verse 9, which is near the end of this psalm. But I want you to really just breathe in the full context of what the author here is, is trying to convey in, in this praise. So Psalm 112 Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now just stop right there. Notice this. Not just one who fears the Lord and keeps his commandments, but what? Delights in his commandments. That's after the heart, right? His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. 
and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it as, and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Notice the contrast here. That those who look upon the Lord, look upon his law, look upon his commandments, delight, truly delight in it. The wicked man sees it and gets angry. And for the one who delights in the law of the Lord, he will be blessed in all that he does. And that, my friends, is the blessing and is the grace of God as we give. As we are charitable and as we give, God will make all graces abound to you. Again, this is not talking about monetary blessings. This is talking about in the work of the Lord, the rejoice of the Lord, the joy you have in serving, the ability to give and for it to be truly the greatest thing on earth. And so when we look at what it means to truly be a cheerful giver, this is what it means. And there's great benefit to that. So we should all desire that. Last section here, and then we'll close out for the day. Verse 10. Paul goes on, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. At the end of the day, verse 15 is what all of this is all about, is for us to give credit where it is due. Because we as human beings, we like to be competitive with one another. Uh, we like to look and compare ourselves with one another. Well, how much are they giving? Well, how much are they doing during the week? Well, what, what kind of ministry work are they doing as opposed to what I'm doing? We like to compare ourselves, and we like to give ourselves way too much credit for the things that we're doing. Or we even sometimes like to put too much credit on other people who we admire for the work that now, it's not a bad thing to boast about one another, especially as we are doing God's work and doing good work. But at the end of the day, we should be giving all thanks to the number one supplier of all good things, and that is God. God is the supplier of all good things. You are simply doing his work. You are simply taking what he has supplied, and you are putting it to work either for yourself or for his purposes. And for those who put God's supply to work for his purposes will ultimately be blessed. Consider Matthew 6.33. 
where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We would not have a thing to give if God did not first allow us to have it, if he didn't give it to us first. And when we think about gifts, when we think about just either just monetary gifts or, or just a, a nice compliment or, or things like that, our attention usually goes to the individual who's giving it. But ultimately, the thanksgiving, all thanks, all honor, all glory are due to him, are due to God. So my friends, if you feel blessed by somebody, if somebody has helped you out in your hour of need, yes, thank them, but ultimately give thanks and glory to God. And as we are giving ourselves, our desire should be not that they are you know, thinking we're the greatest person in the world, that we're the nicest person in the world. Oh, look how nice and awesome they are. That should not be our, our concern. Our concern should be, are they giving glory to God for what has happened here? And that is the heart that God is after. God wants hearts of people who genuinely love him and genuinely love their neighbors, who love their neighbors enough to give in their hours of need. Because by doing so, this will increase the praise, and the thanks of God. And as believers, that should be our ultimate end, is that in one voice you have a multitude who are just lifting up thanks and praise to God. And it should be to the point where we're not even keeping track of who's giving what, but ultimately that people are giving with a cheerful heart. That's what we should be after. Are people giving with a cheerful heart? That's what we should care about. So my encouragement for you this week is, to really just consider the condition of your heart, especially according to the context of when you're giving for the sake of ministry. And this can apply to, to general tithing. This can apply to special projects. This can apply to when you're sending money to charity for uh, people in need. Where's your heart when you're giving it? Is it because it looks good on your tax return? Is it because it looks good to the people you're working with and you want people to speak well of you? Or is it because you genuinely love God and you want to do his will and you're happy to do it because it meets that end? So check your hearts at the door before you leave. And if there's anything, anything that needs to be worked on, if there's any dust that needs to be stirred up, I'd encourage you not to go sprinting out the door and running home to celebrate the Super Bowl. I'd encourage you to stick around for a little bit. Find somebody you trust and ask them to pray for you. Tell them, you know, my heart's just not in it. Would you pray for me? That's as simple as it needs to be. And just a simple prayer. It doesn't need to get all weird. People don't need to start, you know, shaking around and throwing a bunch of stuff and, you know, dumping a bunch of oil all over you. But it's just you can just sit and say a simple prayer. Say a simple prayer with your friends. And God will help you if he sees the sincerity of your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the greatest gift of all, your son, Jesus Christ. What an inexpressible gift that is that we can have freedom. It doesn't matter where we're from or how much money we've got. That you, Lord, you died for all of us. 
And that if we believe in you, we are saved. We have eternal life. We have the treasures of heaven right within us. So God, I just ask that you would develop within us, create in us a clean heart, oh God. Father, we just ask that you would give us the heart of Christ, a true desire to do the will of the Father, and a true desire to help those in need, especially those in spiritual need. So God, let us not leave here today until we just truly just pray to you and ask you to to move our hearts, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the soup and those who brought it. We thank you for the enormous amount of children that we have here. God, just so much, so many gifts that come from those kids and just so many gifts that come from great fellowship here. And all thanks and honor and glory is due to you. God, you deserve all the credit for every good thing that happens here. God, we just ask that you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.